Hi everybody, welcome to Busy Living So Bar, Busy Living So Bar, Busy Living So Bar. Casey, what's up? Hi. How are you today? I'm doing just fine. You are? I am. Are you nervous? No. Okay, good. Don't be nervous because we don't even know these people don't, if, if you want me to put your picture up, I will. We will decide at the end what you want me to have up there to represent you, but I want to know... First off, tell us what it was like a little bit. Give us a little background about yourself. Well, I was always a party girl. I was never one of those. I never wanted to be a ballerina, a teacher, a lawyer, or president. <laughs> I remember my goal from a very young age. I wanted to be a party girl. I wanted to be a drug addict. I don't know where I got that from. I think because I grew up in the 60s and I wasn't sheltered, so I knew it was turn on, tune out. I knew there were people in San Francisco, there were rock festivals and people in San Francisco that were taking LSD and walking around in bare feet. And I fantasized about getting older and living in a group house in San Francisco, eating peyote, and wearing a hat and eating rice with no shoes. That was my fantasy. So I started working right away to make that happen. My parents were not alcoholics. Um, they had other problems, but alcoholism was not one of them. And we had a cabinet, a high cabinet, where they kept the liquor that was gifts. And they would put the liquor up there and, and no one ever touched it. And when they went out, when I was seven or eight years old, I would get the ladder and I would climb up there and I remember getting the Crown Royal with the velvet bag, it had dust on it, and I would open it up and take a sip and it was so putrid and, and I would drink it anyway. Not get drunk, but I just couldn't wait to get up there and drink. And um, I wound up uh, making that a reality by the time I was around 11. I had found some friends in school that had older siblings or divorced parents where no one was home. And I met the people to start like taking uh, drugs and pot. Not so much alcohol, but mostly pills and pot when I was around 11. And I got very bad right away to the point where the people I was hanging out with were concerned about how much I was taking. And then eventually, somehow, uh, luckily, when I was around 12, a bunch of us had got caught in school. And I don't know what happened to the other kids, but they called my mother up to school. We, I went to a good school. It was a public school, but it was a very good school. And we had a counseling office and a drug office. And it was referred to the drug counselor. And he called my mother up to school. And I remember walking in, and she was sitting. I knew it. I knew it. I knew it. <laughs> And uh, they gave her uh, an option. From what I understand, it was like, here's two programs, get her into one of these programs, and we won't call the police. And I'm convinced that if that hadn't happened that day, that I would not be alive today. It wasn't a 12-step program. This was back in like 1972. They had something back then called drug therapy. And I went into what was the equivalent, would be the equivalent of intensive outpatient. 
And I went to this program, and it was every day after school, Monday through Thursday, 12 hours a week of intensive uh, therapy. They used to call it drug therapy. We did encounter groups. Uh, we did family groups. We did private family counseling. I had a private counselor three times a week. We had a community group. It was like 60 kids with various levels of function between the age of 14 and 19. And they had changed the rules to let me in when they did the intake, because you had to be 14, but I was 12. And the guy who did my intake went back to the panel and said, we're going to have to change the rules because this kid's not going to make it another year if we don't get her in, which I agree with him. I don't think I would be alive today if the, in if the intervention hadn't happened at 12. I don't think I would have made it. I think I would have been too far gone. So I stayed in this program, and it was a 10-month program, but they kept me for four years. And... Um, I was up and down. It, 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 it did a lot of good. Sometimes I was clean. Sometimes I wasn't. Um, it was all kinds of shenanigans because that's what will happen with wayward teens. You put 60 wayward teens in a group together and there's going to be some kind of trouble. So sometimes I would be clean for long periods of time and then sometimes I would find a bunch of other kids to get high with and then we would all get caught and then we would have to do... Uh, Object, I don't know if anybody remembers these kind of programs, but they had object lessons and then they would put you in the circle in the middle and everybody would yell at you because you're, you know, jeopardizing everybody else's recovery with this behavior. And um, eventually I got out of the program when I was about 16 years old and I still went for one-on-one -on -one counseling a couple of times a week, not for groups anymore. And I still struggled. Like, sometimes I was clean, sometimes I wasn't. Um, I used to lie to my counselor, and I believe he knew that I was lying, and he didn't confront me on it because he didn't want to lose me. And I couldn't have handled any kind of confrontation, so he just did his best to help me while I was using or not using. And then eventually, when I was around 19 years old, I was able to clean up. And, you know, my problem back then was drugs. I was not much of a drinker. So now I'm 19 years old, and my life has turned around, and I get a job, and I'm doing well, and I get into sports. And then a couple of years later, I was around 22, I decided I was going to try this college thing that everybody was talking about. And I became tremendously successful, completely free from drugs and alcohol. I considered myself a cured drug addict. And I went on, you know, to become very accomplished. I did very well. I was a top student. I got all kinds of scholarships. I got all kinds of perks. I did great at my job. I was supporting myself. Um, I became an athlete. I was on a karate team, and I was getting all kinds of trophies and medals and all this stuff. And... I became like an engineering major, I was a math whiz, like all this stuff that I couldn't imagine was happening to me. Like, I'm an engineering major? Like, do you understand? Like, I had a joint in one hand and a cigarette in the other. How could I possibly be an engineering major? And then uh, I finally got out of college. I was around 27, and I was working for a couple of years trying different things. I was still in touch with 
a bunch of kids from my program. I was still in touch with my counselor. And then uh, something happened that can happen to sober people that could be dangerous if you're not fit. And I wasn't. And I started making money. <laughs> and I started working on Wall Street. And everybody was partying. And we're going out to fancy restaurants and drinking good wine and drinking pretty drinks and martini glasses. And when I was 29 years old, I decided to have a drink. And quite frankly, I did not think there was one thing wrong with that. I, I did not know I was an alcoholic. I thought I was a cured drug addict. And I thought there was absolutely nothing wrong with me having a drink. Nothing wrong. My counselor, who was still in touch with me, was like strongly recommending against it. And he told me at that age, you can make a decision right now. You can drink with your Wall Street buddies, or you can continue to come here, but you can't have both. And I said to him, well, I'm a grown up now, and you still think I'm 12 years old. So I'm going to go live my grown up life. And at that moment, that's what I believed was true. Oh, my God. I didn't know. He had been my counselor since I was 12, and now I was 29. And he saved my life. And now I realize that I threw away a primary relationship for a drink. But then I thought, I'm a big girl, and he just can't see it. And, and off I went. And I drank alcoholically immediately. I didn't know, I never was a sipper. I never was a one drinker. When I went out, I got as trashed as possible. I worked hard, I played hard. I was out with the boys and up with the men. And if you can't run with the big dogs, you need to stay on the porch. <laughs> and you know, I was still doing well at work. I hadn't had any negative consequences then, with the exception of frequently making an asshole out of myself. And um, I thought everything was fine. I was just a party girl. And every couple of years, I would get caught up by the drugs again. And that was a problem. Like, I would go a couple of years, and then I'm at a party, and there's cocaine. And then all of a sudden, I can't stop. I can't stop. Everybody else goes back to work on Monday, and I'm snorting in the bathroom and under my desk during the week. And then I go back to therapy with someone else, not with my original guy, and somehow I get the cocaine. I never thought I needed to stop drinking. I just thought I needed to stay away from drugs or be able to handle my drugs. And somehow I thought I could handle my drugs, but you can never handle your drugs. There's no such thing as handling your drugs, but I thought I could. So. I would, you know, finally I, I got over the co cocaine. I got married in the middle of that somewhere to a very nice guy who was very straight, who knew I had a drug problem. And um, he thought, like, I might be a nice girl to marry with a drug problem. And that didn't work out very well. I blew that with alcohol. He didn't drink or drug. And he married a woman who drank and drugged. So I, I was able to stop drugging to try and save the marriage. And he wanted me to stop drinking, and I wanted him to get the stick out of his ass. So I let that go too. And again, that wasn't my fault. He, he had a problem. He had a problem because he couldn't relax, and I'm not doing anything abnormal. 
and you know it, this just isn't going to work out because he's got some other problem that has nothing to do with me even though he told me straight out like <laughs> you need to stop drinking like I can't come home at three o'clock in the afternoon on a beautiful day and you're drunk and I'm like well I'm having a glass of wine at home what is your problem and and, and I just I let him go and I went on for years and years and it got worse and worse but every time it got worse I was able to pull it back together like I you know I would go through a period with the cocaine and then that would go on for two years and then I was able to get myself off the cocaine and then a couple of years later I started taking Valiums and I couldn't stop with the Valiums and then we ran out of Valiums so I was taking the Rufinol who takes that voluntarily? Does anybody like buy that to take it? No, I did. There was no volumes. We have this. Okay, some people use it to rape people, but we can sell it to you for a good price, and I'll take it. And then I somehow got myself clear from that. So I always thought that I was pulling myself up by my bootstraps. I always thought what had what I thought at the time was successful life. Like, and I never saw a reason to stop drinking. I never saw my drinking as a problem. Never, ever, ever. A couple of years later, I started blacking out all the time. I would lose three days. I would come out of a blackout with a new boyfriend. Like, who is it? <laughs> like, I sort of know this guy, but, you know, apparently we've been... <laughs> You know, he thinks I'm his girlfriend, so I guess I'm his girlfriend. And, you know, or I wake up and I say, well, he looks kind of familiar and trying to piece together what happened. I could barely remember this guy's name, and but there's bagels, so we, there must be something. You know, we bought bagels and we have the New York Times, so I guess he's my boyfriend. And, and, and I still didn't think there was anything wrong with that. And then eventually what happened, I, you know, I was in New York. And uh, I had come out of a blackout, uh, and I, I was in a serious relationship with someone else's husband. And that was not my thing. That was not, I don't do that. That was never that my thing. Like, I don't do that nonsense. But there I was doing that nonsense. And then I kind of came to my senses, and I tried to break up with him, and he didn't want to break up with me, and he bought me a present. And I'm like, well, you know, Maybe it's not so awful, being someone's mistress. And what, what happened with that was, looking back at it now, is I was with this guy for almost three years, and I thought he was my fiancé. I thought we were engaged. Well, he had, like, a whole family out in the suburbs that he lived with, but I thought that he was my fiancé. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know that, like, that's insane. That's crazy. And, and I didn't know that I was crazy. And eventually I came to my senses while still drinking and I realized he's not your fiance. He's married to someone else. You're not gonna be together. This is not who you are and you have to get out of this. I asked him straight out, are you going to ever talk to your wife? And he said, I can't. And I said, well, I guess I have my answer. And that was like my moment of clarity where I was able to walk out of that thing. And then um, this thing happened in New York called 9-11. And I was living in lower Manhattan. I was very close to the site. I had to flee. 
run away from a collapsing building and I uh, couldn't get back into my house for like a week. I couldn't even get back in. Luckily, I got my dog and my keys, but I was out of my house for like uh, a week. I couldn't get in and get my stuff. I couldn't even get back into the building to live until November 1st. And then it, it, it just wasn't, and it wasn't a place that I wanted to be anymore. I never thought I would leave Manhattan. I never thought I would leave New York City. And I wound up leaving. And um, by an odd series of events, I wound up in San Diego, California. I was, the story's too crazy and too long to even get in here for, to even get into, but I wound up in San Diego and I didn't know one single person in San Diego, but I was convinced that I was going to take over San Diego because if you walk around San Diego during the day, nobody's at work. They're all in coffee shops, they're in wetsuits, they're surfing at 11 a.m. And I'm like, these people, they're lazy. I'm from New York. I'm going to come over here and I'm going to take over this town. I'm going to be a big success in San Diego. So in uh, that pursuit, I immediately found the most addicted uh, alcoholic boyfriend I could possibly find. Um, he met all my check boxes. He had money, he had uh, sport coats, and he had two sports cars and a convertible and, and an accent. <laughs> and I was in love. That was all I needed. And we proceeded to just drink ourselves to hell. And I had other boyfriends in between them. Like, he would break up with me. I would break up with him. Then I'd go out with someone else. And I was like, I think I was drunk that entire first year. I don't think I was sober for a minute. Maybe I would try a day here and there. I was not barely sober that entire time I was first living in San Diego. And then I would break up with him, and I'd find another boyfriend. And within a couple of weeks, he'd be ditching me because I was drunk, and I was crazy, and I was demanding, and I was dying, and I was clawing on people to try and get them to save me. It was just like totally out of control. And then the alcoholic boyfriend dumped me because he knew he was out of control. And I didn't find out till years later that he had been sober for 14 years, and he had been active in the program. And he had done what a lot of us do. He got a business, he got a family, he got fancy, he got rich, and he got stopped going to meetings, and then catastrophe hit, and he didn't have the tools, and he was out there. So, so he had some goal to reach to, because he knew that there was a sober to go back to, and he knew he had to get away from me. I was not going to ever be... Uh, able to, you know, be any kind of tool for him that was going to get better. And, and, and after he finally dumped me, I just sank. I, I had gotten to the point where I was drinking 24-7. Uh, I had gotten a couple of prescriptions for tranquilizers that I had running at several different pharmacies. And the last like four months that I was uh, out there, I was basically just waking up to knock myself out again. I had very few friends. I was living in a very beautiful town, but I was not leaving the house very much anymore. 
Um, I had a townhouse. I couldn't make it upstairs, so I was sleeping on the floor in the living room. First, I was sleeping on the couch, and then I didn't feel safe on the couch. So I would, like, sleep on the floor next to the couch, and I would pull the coffee table over me. Because I don't know, it was like I, I, I don't know why, but I just felt like I had to be in a little cocoon. And, and, and I was just a mess. And what I left out of the early part of the story was all my other bottoms before, I used to go by Alcoholics Anonymous or I would go by um, Narcotics Anonymous or they had Cocaine Anonymous in New York. Like when things got out of hand, I would go to those meetings. Never... My goal when I went to those meetings was never to get sober. My goal was just to get, they say, you know, and you're going to teach you how to drink like a lady. Like just to get back to my manageable unmanageability. It never occurred to me that I should stop completely. Now, I was listening when I went to the meetings, so I knew it worked. And when there was a speaker, I listened to these people tell amazing stories. Where they, you know, one guy I remember, he was a Bowery bum. He was living on the Bowery for years in filthy clothes, mumbling to himself. And, and he told the story of what happened and how he got sober and who he was today. So I knew it worked, but it worked for you sick people. Well, not for me. I didn't need it. But you sick people that needed it. It was there for you. And I used to look at the steps that were the steps that were always hanging on the wall, and I saw that first line and it said, We admitted we were powerless over alcohol and and our lives had become unmanageable. And I would Oh, those poor people. That's very dangerous to think that you're powerless. That is so dangerous. They don't understand how self defeating that is to be powerless. I, they, they just don't understand, and you know, maybe some of them are sick enough that this works for them, but ugh. I mean, for the Bowery guy, okay, but this is really <laughs> not for me. But was good, what was good about that, when I was finally at my bottom in San Diego, and I, I couldn't work anymore, I couldn't generate my own income, I couldn't get another boyfriend, I didn't have friends anymore. I wasn't answering the phone. And I remember just laying on the floor and thinking, this is not going to get better this time. Um, I can't pull it. I cannot pull it together this time. I cannot pull. There's no bootstraps. My bootstrap, I don't have boots. There's nothing to grab onto to pull myself back together. And then somehow I got myself to a psychiatrist. <laughs> because I was going to get medication and then I was going to get better from the medication. So I went to see a psychiatrist, the best guy. You know, I always went to the best guy. So this was the best guy in La Jolla, the guy. I found the guy and he was going to save me with Prozac. And he took one look at me and I was not looking pretty at this point. And he asked me about my drug and alcohol uh, ingestion and I was honest with him in quantities and prescriptions and how many prescriptions I had and he said I can't help you I can't help someone in your condition I can't diagnose you and I'm like well I'm only in this condition because I'm depressed so that's why I have to drink so much so if you give me some medication that will 
help me with the depression, then I won't drink so much. And he's like, nah, hon, it don't, it doesn't work that way. You can't, I, I can't help you. And I'm like, well, he's like, you're going to have to sober up for at least, and, and he wasn't an addiction counselor. So some of the advice he gave me, thank God, uh, nothing bad happened. But he said that I had to uh, sober up for at least 30 days that he could possibly diagnose me, but maybe not even then. And he's like, well, I'm like, well, I can't stop drinking unless you give me some medicine. And he's like, well, go to AA. And I'm like, I don't like AA. And he's like, well, then go to a rehab because I can't help you. So I wrote him a check, I remember, for $225. And I said, what an asshole. And I went home and I got drunk and I woke up and I said, yeah, there was an asshole in there yesterday and it was not the doctor because I still feel like shit. I'm still not getting better. And he has my $225. (laughs) And I don't have a solution. And it was a Sunday morning and I called the central office. That's what they call it in San Diego. And I called central office and I told them where I lived and they said, there's meetings there tonight. Here's where all the meetings are tonight. And I said, no, I have to go like now. I have to go right now. And they said, okay, there's a meeting in the next town at 11 o'clock. And I got myself down there and I, I went up to this, it was in a clubhouse, a shitty clubhouse. And I went up the stairs and it was this little shitty room with shitty coffee. And I sat in the back of the room. And, and all the other times I had went to Alcoholics Anonymous, I never talked to anybody. And when people tried to talk to me, you know, they see someone new at the meeting, they try to talk to you, and I would just run out the door. They were like, hey, my name is so-and-so, and I'm like, oh, nice <laughs> to meet you, bye, gotta go. I don't want to talk to any of these crazies. And this time, I, I walked up to talk to someone, and, and I must have looked really bad. And I walked up to the front, and I said, uh, okay, I'm new, what do I do? And you don't even understand how impossible it is that those words would come out of my mouth to some lady that I don't even know in some shitty room with shitty coffee. And she said, wait right here. I have to close up. I have to do some stuff and I'm going to take you to lunch. And she turned her back and I ran down the stairs and I fell down and ripped my pants and ripped my knee. And I thought she was going to follow me. I thought she was going to run after me. So I ran to my car, and I ran and drove home, and I sat on the floor, and then I called the hotline again. And I said, okay, when's the one tonight? When am I going to go to one tonight? So then I went to one that night in my town. And I walked in, and I remember there were like 200 people in there, and I couldn't stand up, and there were no chairs. And I was like, I was leaning on the wall, and I was literally sliding down the wall. I couldn't even stand up. And I was looking at the floor and I said, if I sit on the floor, I'm not gonna be able to get back up. So I'm just gonna try and hold myself up on the wall. And then finally some guy gave me his chair. And then the meeting was over and I did it again. I went up to the front and I said, I'm new. I went to the guy at the, the secretary. I figured he was in charge because he was at the desk. <laughs> he, was, he must be running the place. I'm like, what do I do? I'm new. And he goes, uh, you need books? And he shoved books in my arms, and he goes, and you need Karen. And he grabbed this woman by the shoulders, shoved her at me, and ran off. 
which is fabulous. I love him to this day for doing that. He doesn't remember doing it, but I love him for that day. He gave me to a woman, he gave me books, and he got out of there. He didn't try to help the newcomer, the newcomer girl that was weak. He just said, here's a woman, bye. And this woman was, hi. I'm like, I'm new, what do I do? And she's like, well, you have your books, and let me give you my number. I'm like, mm, that's weird, but I'm fine. <laughs> and, you know, there's a meeting tomorrow at 10 o'clock, and uh, if, if you can go to that meeting, you should go to this meeting at 10 o'clock on Monday. It's a women's meeting at this church that was also near my house. So I got up in the morning, and it was weird because I went outside and I saw my next-door neighbor on her bicycle, and for some reason I thought, I wonder if that lady's going to that meeting. And then I got to the meeting, and that lady was going to that meeting. And I walked through the door, and she looked at me, and she's like, I didn't know you were in the program. And I'm like, honey, you live next door to me. You know I'm not in the program. And my house was a zoo. I mean, people were coming and going before, you know, when I, before I finally threw in the towel. But, like, people were coming and going. I was getting locked out, climbing in the window. The locksmith was coming at 2 o'clock in the morning. Where's my car? Whose car is this? It was, you know, a, a people, where did all this Denny's come from? Like, it was that kind of house. I'd come downstairs. It'd be people all over the floor. I didn't know who they were. And she was right next door. So she saw all this. And she was sober. And she's like, oh, today's my birthday. They're going to give me a cake. I've been sober for 11 years, and I, fuck. Are we allowed to curse yes, on this thing? Yes, I yep. was like, oh, fuck. Like, now I have to go in there or I have to leave town because this lady's right next door to me, and she knows. She's like, well, come on in. Come in and have cake on my birthday for 11 years. <laughs> and I'm just looking at her like, oh, my God. And I sat down in that meeting, and I just, it was an hour and a half meeting, all women. Um, it's a very well-known meeting in La Jolla, California, where there's literally a thousand, and I'm not exaggerating, there can be a thousand years of sobriety in that room. I mean, these ladies, it's mo mainly um, more mature women that have been sober for like 30, 40, 50 years, and I just sat there crying. And, and, and they, uh, you know, most people go to rehab and come out kind of perky, yeah, I wasn't in. I wasn't perky, and I don't think they had seen anything like me for 30, 40 years, where people come in like detoxing right in front of them, and they kept getting up and saying, "My name is Sally May, and I haven't had a drink in twenty-seven years," and I went, "Ah, my name is Billy Sue, and I haven't had a drink in thirty-one years." I couldn't, I was melting down. I couldn't figure out, what do you do? All I kept thinking was, what do you do for 31 years? Like, I haven't had a drink. Well, what do you do? And I didn't realize that was a weird thing to be thinking. Like, if you don't drink, what else is there to do if you don't drink? And I just cried and cried. And then some lady was holding me. And at one point towards the end, it was an hour and a half. So I was dehydrated from all the crying. And I picked up my head, and the younger girls were all sitting around me on the floor. And this lady was holding me. I had cried all over her beautiful silk shirt. 
And then these two ladies came up to me and they said, do you want to go to lunch? And I said, I want to go lie down. And this lady looked up at me. She was about five feet tall and I'm about six feet tall. And she looked up at me and she pointed her finger with her talon fingernail and she said, Casey, do not isolate. And I said, okay, I'll go. <laughs> and I went to lunch with these ladies. And... Um, I went home after that and went to sleep, and they were all talking about dancing and fun and sobriety, and they were eating omelets, and I was sick as a dog. And I, I ordered toast because I was afraid not to order food, and I worked, I tried so hard to eat that toast. And they knew, they knew the poor kid can't eat. And I, was, I went home, I went to sleep, and then 6.30, knock, knock, knock. It's the girl next door. Come on, we're going to the meeting, get in the car. And, and it was off to the races. And I was very fortunate that I, it was a very small town and there were a lot of meetings and a lot of sober people. And the women just enveloped me. They were just like, I'm gonna, and I didn't say no to anything. I was so dumb and I, I done. And I was dumb because I was smart. I always knew everything. And finally I said to myself, if you're so effing smart, why are you laying on the floor and you can't even walk and you don't have a job and you don't have a boyfriend and you don't have a friend and you can't even go outside? If you're so smart, maybe you need to shut up and go listen to somebody else. I said that to myself. Usually the old timers say that to the newcomers. <laughs> I said that to myself. Like, just shut up and listen and whatever these ladies tell you to do, just do it. And they said, we're going to get in the car. You're going to this meeting. I said, okay. They said, oh, here's Casey. She's going to make coffee. I said, okay. They said, oh, Casey's in charge of the cookies. I said, yes. They said, I'm picking you up. I'm taking you here. I said, yes. They said, here's a book. Read this. I said, yes. Then the lady next door, after like 10 days, I knew I had to do this thing, get a sponsor. And they said, find someone who has what you want. And I'm like, okay, so now I have to find the really rich lady who's sober and has a yacht and a mansion and a rich husband. So while I was looking for that lady, <laughs> the girl next door was like, well, I'll be a temporary sponsor. Okay, what does that mean? She's like, well, I'll just, you know, until you find the lady with the yacht, <laughs> I'll just help you and you'll do the steps. And then, but it's not permanent. So, you know, I'll just help you so you can get started. So we did the steps together. And she was my sponsor for two years. And I did the steps and I stayed sober and I did what people told me and I started to feel better. And around a month into it, people started walking up to me saying, you look so much better. <laughs> You clean up good. And I was like, oh, my God, what did I look like? They're like, honey, we don't know, but you look different now. And your, <laughs> your skin's the right color now. And, you know, you look human. So I was like, okay, maybe this stuff is working. And I just kept going. And I kept going to meetings. And I kept doing the steps. And I took service commitments. And I pretty much lived the program pretty diligently the whole time I was in San Diego. And then after about eight years sober, I had a reason to move back to the East Coast. 
And over the course of that eight years, I actually had two different sponsors. My first sponsor is still one of my best friends. And then later I got a different sponsor who was older and had a different, uh, she was a better fit for me. And uh, they had both moved with long-term sobriety and they both told me this is gonna be very dangerous. This is a, a weak time. Like you think you're strong, but this is a very bad time when you move somewhere and you, you're used to being sober, you know everybody in town here and the new town north and the town south and you're going to go and you're not going to know anybody and it's going to be very easy to fall through the cracks. So listening to that advice, I came to Fort Lauderdale and I made sure that I was known. I went to meetings every day when I first moved and I raised my hand at every single meeting for two months when they said, is there anybody new? I said, oh, I just moved here Tuesday. Oh, I moved here last week. Oh, I moved here two weeks ago. And I just kept doing that and doing that until everybody knew who I was. And I had some accountability. And then I went to this place called BCIC, because I had done institutions in San Diego, and I wanted to get into it here. And I wound up taking a commitment, bringing AA meetings into the jail. And what that meant is you have to get people to to go with you. So I had to go to more meetings and I had to meet women and I had to get names of women who had sobriety and could pass a background check to go with me to jail. So I met women all over the county. And then I got involved in the women's conference. And I met more women through that. And you know, like a lot of people, I've been sober uh, now 17 years and, and one month. and. What I've seen happen with a lot of people started to happen to me, where I got busy with life and I got away from meetings. I wasn't really going. I was involved in this or that committee here or there, but I wasn't really going to meetings anymore. And then um, I, my friend died in San Diego. I got a call. She had not been going to meetings and she was struggling. And I got a call from her sister that she was found dead in her house. And she had been there for a couple of days before her sister who lived out of state called the police. And I said, you know what? You know, I've been listening to people. You gotta keep going to meetings. You have to keep going to meetings. And, it, and it's scary, and, I, and, it, and you know, it was uh, a big thing, but a little thing. And, and it, it scared me enough to get me to go back to meetings because this is not, you know, it's, it's like you don't go to the gym and work out for five years and think you're going to stay fit for the rest of your life. If you stop going to the gym, you're going to get flabby. You know, if you stop going to the program and you stop doing Alcoholics Anonymous, your, your sobriety muscles are going to get weak. And, and that's not something, you know, that's what happened to her and, and, and she got dead. And, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm sad that that happened. I'm, I, I, I'm still not quite done processing it. But if anything positive came out of it is that it woke me up to get me back to meetings and realize that this is something that we have to keep working at. And uh, here I am, and I don't know what else I have to say. So I want to say, uh, for one, you're amazing. You're hysterically funny. You say and, that to all the girls. Well, I, no, you know what? I have to say, I have never heard your story from beginning to end. I loved it. I loved I was riveted the entire time. I didn't even say a word. I didn't have to interrupt you. I didn't have to do anything. I was like, oh, my God, what happened next? What happened next? 
And um, I know one thing about you that we haven't talked about, and that's you being agnostic. Oh, yes. And I wanted to just throw that out there because I, to see a couple of things, I'm like, oh, my God, that was totally God. Like, how did this girl live next door to her in San Diego? And then you get, like, what was that? Was that a God moment or what? And then you going, and then your friend just passing away, and then your friend passing away because she stopped going to meetings. And how was that? So I know that there's a lot of people that are out there that listen to the show and they're like, I don't want to go to AA. I hate AA. I don't believe in God. It's this religious thing. It's this cult bullshit, which you know that's been called a cult, I'm sure, in the past 17 years in one month. Congratulations, by the way. What is your thoughts on that? Like, what is your advice to the person that's out there listening who feels that way? First of all, I'm going to say is that in Southern California, they're a lot more liberal about the God thing. And... What, what I also like to say is the day before I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, nothing could have gotten me to come to Alcoholics Anonymous. And the day I walked through the door, nothing could have kept me out of here. There was nothing you could have said to keep, keep me out of here. So for the most part, I was like, God, fine. But fine, cook it, fine. I'll do the cookies. Uh, uh, fine, whatever, fine. Do that, read that. Yes, yes, I'll do it. Whatever it is, I'll flip and do it within, you know, within reason. I didn't listen to any men. I only talked to women in the beginning. I didn't want to deal with the nonsense. I was a little older when I came in, so I knew there was going to be nonsense. I'm like, I'm a train wreck, and any of these guys that come near me now is just not, it's not going to be good. But as far as being agnostic, you know, people kind of run away from me here when I say I'm agnostic. And agnostic just means that you don't know. Like, I know there's something bigger than me. Like, I'm not, it can't be all me, you know? Like, I'm not that great. I'm just another human being. There's something out there. I just don't know what it is. Now, as a side note, I want to say that I have met atheists. Atheists do not believe in God. I have met atheists that have figured out a way to make the 12 Steps of Alcoholics Anonymous work for them. And for me, when I first came into the program, you know, there were people that said, oh, you have to believe in the man upstairs. I don't know if there's a man upstairs. I personally don't think there is. There might be. I have no idea. Um, I know there's something that watches over me. I know I'm very fortunate and, and lucky. Uh, they said I had to find a higher power and... For most of my sobriety, it's been the power of Alcoholics Anonymous. I mean, I was in San Diego, which is an extremely sober town. There's a lot of meetings, and they're big. There's a lot of sober people. And I looked around the room, and I'm like, all these people are doing this thing. All these people are doing this thing. Millions of people in Southern California are sober. If it worked for all these people, it can work for me. And, and I didn't want to do the steps, you know. People don't want to do the steps. Who wants to do that four step? Who wants to admit they're powerless? Who wants to write down every shitty thing you ever did and then tell someone about it? Like, yeah, right, no one wants to do that. And I looked around the room and I'm like, all these MFs did those steps. Like, that guy did the steps. That fatso did. That idiot did. All these people did the steps. I give all these people can do the steps. They're not better than me. I can do the steps. And I did the damn steps. And I did the fourth step and the fifth step. And I did made the apologies and all that. And 
some people don't agree with what I think that, you know, that I mean saying I don't know what God is. It works for me. And, and I think people, a lot of people I see when they first come in, they sweat the God thing too much. Like you have to find a God or this program is not going to work for you. And then you don't do the steps and you don't do the work because you, you don't, can't identify God. You don't have to identify God. You know, they used to say in San Diego, let your God be a doorknob. If it's a door, like how stupid is that? Your God is a, door, a doorknob? But they say, whatever, any God, just grab a God. Just whatever, anything. The dog can be the Just identify something as God. I know a guy in San Diego. He's been sober about over 40 years now. And he always tells a story that they told him his higher power could be anything. He got sober in Manhattan. And so he picked Gumby. <laughs> his higher power was Gumby. And he would, you know... Gumby was going to restore us to him to sanity. And you know what? It's the stupidest thing you ever heard, but the guy's been sober. He's an odd guy. I'll give you. <laughs> he is a very odd man, but he's been sober for over 40 years. So don't sweat the God things. You don't have to, you know, a lot of people in the program believe in Jesus. So what does that mean? It doesn't work for the Jewish guy? Like, it's your concept of God, your concept of a higher power. And in my book, if Alcoholics Anonymous, like if the power of alcohol is this worldwide organization, how many people are sober now? Oh, what? Hundreds, hundreds, hundreds of millions. Hundreds. Yeah, hundreds, hundreds of millions yeah. of people, then I'm going to let the power of the group be my higher power. And it works for me. Well, Casey, this was awesome. Thank you very much. I really <laughs> loved you. it. I really loved Thank it. You. I really loved it. And if anybody wants to reach out to Casey and can relate, I mean, she's been through a lot. And if you are listening and you're like, oh my gosh, I feel like I've been a lot, through a lot and I don't, whatever, in your head you're making up stories and you want to reach out to Casey, please do. You can always reach me at busy, B-I-Z-Z-Y, at Busy Living Sober. And um, know that you're not alone. You're not alone. You're not alone. And if you can do this, I can do this. Yes. And don't be alone. Don't let alcohol and drugs be the thing that's going to take you out. Because no. it does for too many people. So until next week, everybody, keep getting busy living sober. Bye-bye.